doing the bare minimum. I did a Google search this week of that exact phrase, and the very first result I got was an article from psychologytoday.com entitled, How to Do the Bare Minimum. Now, to be fair, the article wasn't advocating always living this way, but that on stressful days when our energy and spirits are low, bare minimum might be our only option. So they gave suggestions on how to still be productive while giving the least amount of effort. Their suggestions included things like choose the easiest easiest path, take your time, cut yourself a little slack, and don't multitask. That last one of multitasking reminds me of how I get inspired every morning when I drop my kids off at Mesa Grande Academy, and I see Mr. Joey Steffen in the parking lot doing squats and lunges while he is welcoming the elementary students to school and taking their temperatures. I always leave there thinking, man, I need to exercise more or maximize my time better. So thank you, Mr. Steffen, for the inspiration. So the first article in the search result was encouraging one to do the bare minimum. Thankfully, the second search result was from a website called entrepreneur.com entitled, Dear Self, Quit Doing the Bare Minimum. The author of that article states how we expect people to not settle for the bare minimum for us, right? Like we wouldn't want our mechanic doing the bare minimum required to make our family car safe to drive, or we wouldn't want our surgeon doing the bare minimum needed to keep our heart pumping. We wouldn't want the chef at our favorite restaurant doing the bare minimum to ensure the food we eat is safe to consume. consume. In fact, I want to read you an excerpt from the article of what the author says next. I think it's good to read in his own words. He says, you expect people to go above and beyond. You want people to go the extra mile for you in situations when your life depends on it and otherwise. You want to know that people care about their craft and care about you, right? I know I do. Yet there's a troubling trend in the workforce and entrepreneurship right now. And it all has to do with two things, effort and reward. Too many people believe that you should be lavishly rewarded simply by putting in the effort, any amount of effort. Launch a startup. Get hundreds of paying customers in a matter of weeks. Quit eating bread. Overnight Instagram fitness model success. It seems silly when you read it, but for some reason, that's how we've trained ourselves to think. Because I went through the motions, I now deserve a reward. And in case you suggest I might be exaggerating, this entire post is based on a conversation I had with a friend and fellow entrepreneur. He told me a story about an employee of his that asked, Hey, so if I start showing up to work on time, do you think I can get a raise? The author concludes by saying, it's a toxic way of approaching life and work. Now, of course, there may be times when doing the bare minimum is all we can do or should do. I mean, who of us hasn't thrown things into the closet or under the bed when we get a call from a friend saying, hey, we're stopping by your house and your house is a mess. There's no time to put things away properly or clean thoroughly. And yes, there may be days where stress and busyness or our health restricts us from being able to do more than just the minimum. But in general, 
I would agree with the author of the entrepreneur.com article. Doing just the minimum is a toxic way of approaching life and work, especially when it comes to our spiritual life. As we arrive in chapter 10 in our Gospel of Mark series, we come upon two different encounters, two different encounters that show how doing the bare minimum is a toxic way of approaching our spiritual lives. Let's start reading together that first encounter starting in Mark 10, verse 1. Then Jesus left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house, again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This encounter Jesus has with the Pharisees shows me that doing the bare minimum with God is toxic because it can cause us to replace God's will with legalism. The specific question the Pharisees ask Jesus about here is divorce. Why the Pharisees test him on this specific matter is unclear. What is clear is that they intend to use this topic to trap Jesus in some way. Maybe they are trying to provoke him to say something about divorce that will arouse the antipathy of the Herodian family. Divorce, remember, was a sensitive topic for them, and any disapproving accusations from Jesus could imperil his life as it did for John the Baptist. You may recall from Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist's denunciation of Herod Antipas's divorce and remarriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, led to his arrest and beheading. Maybe they're hoping Jesus' comments on divorce would yield a similar outcome. Their specific question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds in a way he often does with these kinds of traps, with a question of his own. Well, what did Moses command you to do? This comeback from Jesus recasts the issue from a hypothetical debate about some unspecified husband and circumstances to a command directed to them. They reply by citing the regulations covering divorce as stated in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Then Jesus declares that this law was only a compromise situation designed to reduce the fallout from men's hardness of heart. I think it's worth pausing here to note that the allowance for divorce was really meant to protect wives from brutal abandonment. It freed a wife from the accusation of adultery when she, out of necessity, in that time and place, 
had to remarry, and it prevented the first husband from destroying her new marriage by trying to reclaim her. It deterred anything that might look like wife swapping. The law was therefore intended to provide protection for women and keep the social upheaval associated with divorce to a minimum. I think it's also worth noting that in Jesus' day and age, certificates of, a, of divorce were especially being abused. Men were issuing, issuing divorces for trivial things, like if their wives would just spoil the dinner. No wonder then Jesus reminds them in this moment his ideal for marriage, this beautiful, intimate union of oneness he gifted to us from the beginning of creation, a oneness that he never wants to see broken. Now, we, of course, could spend our time today focusing on that ideal marriage relationship and talking about the topic of divorce, which is an important one to talk about. But since this conversation on marriage and divorce was brought up in the form of a hostile question by people bent on trapping Jesus, I felt impressed to turn our focus on the way the Pharisees approached this law with Jesus. And it seems to me that they have a fatal flaw in their approach to the law. They come to the law asking, what does it allow me to do? Or to put it more bluntly, what can I get away with? And in the process of having that approach, they have lost sight of God's ideal. Doing the bare minimum with God can lead to replacing God's will with legalism. You know, we often think of legalism as, what can I do to earn God's favor? But I also think legalism occurs when we think, what am I allowed to do before I fall out of God's favor? Either approach declares that one doesn't need God, just their own efforts. Either approach puts the focus squarely on self, rather than on God and His will. As I was thinking about uh, the topic of legalism, my mind went to that chapter in Max Lucado's book, He Still Moves Stones, where he talks about being trapped by legalism. I think Lucado really painted the toxicity of legalism when he says in that chapter, legalism is slow torture suffocation of the spirit, amputation of one's dreams. Legalism is just enough religion to keep you, but not enough to nourish you. He goes on to say, can I give you the down and dirty about legalism? Legalism doesn't need God. Legalism is the, is the search for innocence, not forgiveness. It's a systematic process of defending self, explaining self, exalting self, or justifying self. Legalists are obsessed with self, not God. I think that's well said. And I think that becomes our reality, whether we try to outwork God or we try to get away with doing the least amount of work we can for him. And the thing is, Jesus is standing in our midst saying, I have so much good I want you to experience. 
I want you to experience intimate, meaningful, and joyful relationships. That's my ideal for you. But I can't give that to you if all you're focused on is, what can I get away with? We miss out on so much when we settle for the minimum with God because we replace his will for us with legalism. Well, then we come to the second encounter. It begins with another person posing a question to Jesus. And that is starting in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. And we read, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This second encounter shows me that when you settle for doing the minimum with God, you settle for a good life rather than a great one. Now, it may be unfair to say that this man who asked Jesus this question was only doing the bare minimum in his life. After all, we see in the details of the story that he seems to be a good person, a moral person. When Jesus said, keep the commandments, he replied, which ones? Jesus tells him, and he says, I've done all that. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anyone. I've loved my neighbors myself. I've done this since I was young. I am a good moral person. He also must have applied himself greatly in life because he was successful. At least I assume that because the text says he had great wealth. He would have had whatever he needed by the way of this world's blessing. And I think it's also worth noting that he was a young man. We don't get that detail so much from Mark's account. We do from Matthew's account. He had accomplished moral excellence and great wealth and success at a young age. So obviously he wasn't lazy. He wasn't, you know, uh, just not giving any effort at all. Obviously he was driven and, and put a lot of his heart into his life. But I would say that he was still settling for the minimum because he wasn't willing to go all in with Jesus. The Pharisees, they were settling for the minimum with the attitude What can we get away with? The rich young ruler is settling for the minimum with the attitude, what don't I have to give up? What mattered most to him was his earthly treasures. And he was fine following God, receiving eternal life, all the benefits, as long as he didn't have to give that up. He wanted maximum benefits without having to change his circumstances or change what mattered most to him to be Jesus. That sounds like settling for the minimum with God to me. And by asking him to give up his wealth in order to follow him, Jesus is telling this young man, 
you can't follow me halfway. To experience that full and abundant life you seek, you have to be all in with me. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is giving this young man a choice. On the one hand, you can choose a good life. A life that is comfortable. A life where you are a moral person. A good person. A good neighbor. A life where you are a functional and healthy member of society. A a life where you can provide for your family. It's a good life. That's the first choice. Or you have another choice. You can choose not just a good, but a great life. One where you journey with me into the grand adventure called the kingdom of God. It won't always be a comfortable life. But if you let me take you outside your comfort zone, you will grow in ways you never could have imagined. It may not always be a life filled with material gain, but your life will never, your life will always be filled with passion and purpose. There may be some uncertainty at times as you follow the call I've placed on your life, but if you put your trust in me, I will lead you and use you beyond what you ever thought was possible. It's a life that will require sacrifice, but you won't be lacking in anything. It won't be the kind of life the world promotes, but it's the kind of life that will change the world. I think in this encounter with the young man, Jesus is basically asking him, what kind of life do you want? A good life or a great life with me? What is the life that you will choose? Good life or a great life? I especially present that question to those listening today who are in that same phase of life the man in this story was in. You who are young, young adults. As you search for purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life, will you choose to go all in with Jesus and experience the life of abundance now and forever? Or will you settle for just doing the minimum and live a good life? Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, told a story about a goose. A goose who was wounded and who landed in a barnyard with some chickens. He played with the chickens and ate with the chickens, and after a while that goose thought he was a chicken. One day a flight of geese came over, migrating to their home. They gave a honk up there in the sky and he heard it. Kierkegaard said, something stirred within the breast of this goose. Something called him to the skies. He began to to flap his wings that he hadn't used, and he rose to his feet and then was in the air. Then he stopped, and he settled back again into the mud of the barnyard. He heard the cry, but he settled for less. I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for less with God. I don't want to just live a good life. I want to live a great life. I don't want to lose sight of God's ideals. I want to experience the richness that can only come from living in his will. And I want the same for you. So family, my appeal to you today is simply this. Commit to doing more than the minimum 
in your relationship with God. And maybe that's too general of appeal. Maybe you would like a more practical application of that appeal to take home with you. If so, I, I found this illustration that a preacher once used with his congregation, and it helped this appeal become more practical to me. And I hope it will do the same for you. I want to conclude the message today by just reading these words to you. He said, I will do more than belong. I will participate. I will do more than just care. I will help. I will do more than believe. I will practice. I will do more than be fair. I will be kind. I will do more than forgive. I will reconcile. I will do more than dream. I will work. I will do more than teach. I will inspire. I will do more than earn. I will enrich. I will do more than give. I will serve. I will do more than live. I will grow. I will do more than suffer. I will triumph. I will do more than just the minimum. Please bow your heads and join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that uh, you want the best for us, that you want us to live a great, fulfilling, purpose-filled life with you. We thank you, Lord, that your ideal is for us to experience deep, intimate relationships like those that come in the oneness of a marriage relationship. But Lord, sometimes I am guilty, and I'm sure others are too, of, of approaching you with in totally the wrong way, our relationship with you in, in ways where we might think, well, what's the least I can do in order to get the maximum amount of benefits? But Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful that our relationship with you doesn't operate in that way. Lord, you were willing to do more than the minimum for us. You were willing to go all in on our account and give your life to save ours. And Lord, if, if we want to experience that great life, if we want to experience the richness that only comes from living in your will, then Lord, we need to respond in the same way, to be all in with you, Jesus. So Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to empower us in our relationship with you to do more than just the minimum. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.